And uh, my territory included Sandy and Gresham and government camp. So I would often drive through here. And of, and of course, uh, about at least 90% of the time, I would stop and get Joe's Donuts on the way. Uh, because you have to. It's just right there. I, I didn't have a choice, right? Um, so, so I love this area, so I was so pleased to get to come back out here and uh, even got here a little early, hiked a bit of the trails, um, had to, had to re-up re on my cougar skills as I was reading the signs and the warnings, because that's like being terrified, right, of course, of being attacked while I'm by myself, especially if I'm supposed to come preach. So, all that just to say, it is a joy to be with you all this morning. Um, our text is going to be Psalm 3, which we will get to in a minute. But first a question. How do you respond when things don't go your way? When ad adversity sense sets in? When opposition rises against you? You see, none of us are immune to conflict. We can all look and just think about in our lives the conflicts that we've had. Just being in ministry for so long, I've had many conflicts arise within and without of the ministry. And oftentimes what happens for me personally is as I feel misunderstood. I feel unable to uh, address it because if I seek to justify myself, it, it might just make things worse. I wonder what might be happening to my reputation what it does is it drives me to do what we so often tell people to do and encourage one another to do. It encourages me to, to pray, to depend on the Lord, to take care of things. So I, I wonder what this has been like for you. We've all been misunderstood. But if you had that experience when, when you have so much adversity building up in your life, that it feels like the walls are beginning to close in on you. When it feels like adversities are just multiplying one on top of the other, just submerging you underwater, only to allow your head to come up to get air and, and to get pressed back underwater again. Well, what do we do in these moments? Do we need a better plan? A, a creative solution? Maybe an escape hatch? So what we know is that none of these things are sufficient. They might solve the problems that we have for the day, but there's going to be a new adversity tomorrow. See, our problems in this life are like cockroaches, hard to kill, and there's always more. See, adversity is a daily part of our experience in this life, in this world. <laughs> Friends, I'm not immune. I've got four kids. You may have had adversity just in the morning trying to get to church. Adversity is everywhere. So what we need is not more ingenuity on our parts. It's like telling someone who's drowning to kick their legs. If they knew how to do that, they wouldn't be drowning in the first place. See, what you and I need is a stronger ally. We need someone who will come in, someone who will rise up against the adversity in our lives, against the enemies in our life, and face it for us. Someone that will advocate on our behalf. So what we need and who we need is the Lord. We need to understand who we can depend upon when our enemies close in around us, when adversity closes in around us. And what we're going to see this morning from Psalm 3 is it's exactly what King David needed as well. 
See, when we understand that the Lord rises up against our enemies, what we can actually do is we can begin to rest. We can rest peacefully in the Lord, knowing that he is in control. So here's what I want us to consider this morning from Psalm 3. Here's the the main argument and the main thing that we're going to be thinking about this morning is this. When life hits you hard, go to sleep because the Lord will rise up. When life hits you hard, go to sleep because the Lord will rise up. Well, we're going to be in Psalm 3 this morning, so let's take, let's read Psalm 3, and, and our first point we're going to think about this morning is the first part of my, my statement, when life hits you hard. Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So the first point this morning, when life hits you hard, and we're just going to consider these first two verses. Now this psalm, I didn't read the first part of it, but the, the, the superscript says right there, before we get to verse one, if you read it in your Bibles, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So our psalm has its origins towards the tail end of David's reign. See, most of you probably know the story of David and Absalom, but, but let's recap it because it's going to be a helpful, it's going to be a helpful lens to read and understand this psalm through. So one of David's sons, he had many, at least 70, one of David's sons, Absalom, was sitting at the gate, day in and day out, calling for justice. You, you can read about this story in 2 Samuel 15 to 17. And 2 Samuel 15, 3 to 4, this is what it says. Absalom would say to him, see, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And then just a few verses later in verse six, it says, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. See, Absalom stole the hearts of Israel and set himself up as a king, which which David recognizes and and it causes him to flee before he could be captured by Absalom's men. See, and those those loyal to David went with them. And as they're escaping, David's main counselor, Hushai, wanted to come with him. But, but David needed Hushai to stay within Jerusalem. He needed Hushai to go and be a counselor for Absalom. And because the reason why David wanted that is so that Hushai could defeat the council of Absalom's counselor, uh, Ahithophel. So that gives us just this initial insight and picture of Psalm 3. David is on the run. He has fled from his kingdom. He has fallen from grace. The greatest and most powerful king is now running. See, his enemies were rising against him. 
see what he says. Look again at verses one and two. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. He has many foes. And then, and then he intensifies that statement in the, in the second line of verse one. Many are rising against me. David's enemies are literally multiplying. What was once just a few is now quickly growing in number and size. See, and what had, what had changed, David was now displaced from power. Absalom had risen to the throne. And those who were just there to attach themselves to power had, had now attached to Absalom. The people assume that the Lord is behind this. See, they, they assume that the Lord removed David and placed Absalom in his, in, in his stay. This is what is meant by verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. That, was this, that line there in verse 2 was not an attack against the Lord, but against David. That David had no salvation in the Lord because the Lord had rendered judgment on David. And, and the declaration against David from the Lord is that he is guilty, that he had been judged and had been removed. See, something important to remember about Israel and the ancient Near East at that time is so much of their wisdom, and, and you see this in the Proverbs and you see this in Job, it's understood as retribution. So, so Job's friends, if we can just quickly think about Job, right? Job's friends tell Job, Job, you must have sinned, for God only punishes the wicked. So, Job, because you're being punished, you therefore have sinned. So, the people of Israel would have seen David's removal as judgment of the Lord for David's sin. He had been judged and been removed. Here's a question for us. Can we sympathize with David? See, are there things going on in our lives, adversities going on in our lives that keep us up at night? Things that threaten to overwhelm us, cause us to doubt the Lord? Or maybe for some of you, you've gone beyond doubt. You're not doubting God. You're you're beyond God. Life has taken so many turns, has heaped so many troubles upon you. There's no way God could be involved. There's no way God would let this happen to you. Your, circum- your circumstances have stacked so high that even God would be un- unable to prevent the inevitable tumbling of your life, the destruction that feels like it's coming your way. See, we wouldn't blame David if he felt the same way, tra- chased from his kingdom by his own son. Now, on the doorstep of death, in his hands, in the fate of a rebellious and traitorous son. But see, there's no sign in our psalm that David ever doubted God in his situation. As a matter of fact, we get quite the opposite. David doesn't blame God. He attributes his suffering. He attributes this betrayal to God. See, as David is escaping in 2 Samuel, he comes across one of Saul's descendants. You may remember this. One of Saul's descendants, Shimei, who cursed David over and over again. And one of David's men asked if he could take off Shimei's head, (laughs) as if David would get to just march around with it. But David's response is telling in 2 Samuel. Here's what he says to his men. 
He said, if he, meaning Shimei, is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? See, brothers and sisters, David saw his tribulation coming from the Lord. He stood back and looked at the situation that he was placed in. And rather than excusing God, rather than blaming God, he says, this is the Lord's will. And friend, I just have to ask, what suffering and what difficulties are you going through today? What pain is inflicting your heart in your life? Where are you saddened and depressed and struggling under the weight of living in this world? Because we can either squirm and struggle and try to work our way out, or we can do what David did. We can turn to the Lord. We can see how we can rest in him. Which brings us to the second point. Go to sleep. When life hits you hard, go to sleep. Let's, let's look at verses 3 through 6. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. See, David moves in this prayer from despair to confidence. Though my enemies rise, though they multiply against me, the Lord is a shield. He is my glory, and he is the lifter of my head. So first, the Lord is David's shield. The Lord surrounds him. The Lord protects him. It's this image of covering him. The Lord is covering David. Second, the Lord is David's glory. You see that right there. He says, O Lord, you are a shield about me, my glory. Which is to say that David's glory was not in earthly things. It was not in the praise of men. It was not in the accolades that he had accumulated. David's glory is in the Lord. And finally, the Lord is the lifter of David's head. Though David was distraught and downcast, though David could not raise his own head, he had confidence that the Lord was raising his head. The Lord would lift him up. See, David's enemies had risen against him, and yet David's prayer is that the Lord is on his side. He knows it. He believes it. You see, in, in verse 4, it takes it even a step further. The Lord answered David from his holy hill. And, and what we know is that the holy hill, if you, if you just look in your Bibles at Psalm 2, verse 6, Psalm 2, verse 6 says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The holy hill is none other than Mount Zion herself. And this is a significant recognition because at that moment, who is sitting on the throne in Zion or, or what we would just say Jerusalem? It's not David. It's Absalom. Absalom is sitting on the throne. But though Absalom had driven out the Lord's anointed, Absalom could not drive out the Lord. The Lord answered David from his holy hill, which is to say David recognizes who is actually in power. 
It's not Absalom. It's not even David. It was never either of them. It was the Lord. Because the Lord rules from his holy hill. And the Lord orchestrates all of creation that is below him. None can usurp his authority. But he gives to all what he so desires. See, David's adversary is Absalom, but ultimately David's fate is not actually in Absalom's hands. It's in the hands of the Lord. It's in the hands of the one who rules from his holy hill. And friends, that's, this is hard for us to admit. Our fates and our lives are not in the hands of those who rule over us. Our fates and our, hand, our, our lives are in the hands of the Lord. Because the Lord is both our protector and the one, the one who rules over all creation. But I, and I think this is hard for us because on a deeper level, at times we struggle to trust God. We struggle to trust that God is actually the one who's in control. We struggle to trust that God actually has what is good for us in mind. We know Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But do we trust God? Do we trust his sovereign reign over all things? Do we trust that God's idea of good may not necessarily be what our understanding of good is? He may have a greater purpose in mind. He may have a greater suffering to wean us off of our dependence of this world. See, we need to remember that because God is orchestrating all of creation, because he rules from his holy hill, he actually stands outside of this world. He, he's answering from his holy hill regardless of who's on the throne, because God sits enthroned above all things. And what David gives us is an important insight for us as Christians. What David is saying is that God is transcendent. See, transcendent is to stand above and beyond. God sits above all things. See, what David also brings out is God's nearness. What had David just said? He had just said that God is a shield, right? He is his glory, the lifter of his head. This is another idea that, that theologians will call God's imminence, that, that God is both transcendent and that he is above all of creation and out, stands outside of it, but that God is also imminent. God is right next to us in this life. And there are two important categories for us to keep in our understanding of God. Because it's understanding that God is both sovereign and transcendent all of, over all of creation, that allows us to trust God in whatever happens, that the Lord is in control. But then it's God's imminence, it's God's nearness, it's His closeness to us that helps us to trust that no matter what happens, He understands. The author of the Hebrews helps us understand this, that God can help us when we're being tempted because He Himself was tempted in every way and suffered for it. See, Jesus is friend and Lord. He is both near and above. And, and I'll just say that as Christians, we tend to prioritize one of these over the other. That, that either God is only transcendent, and he becomes cold and calculating, dispassionate, disconnected from our world. 
Or God is only imminent. God, Jesus is my boyfriend, right? He only cares about what I need. He's only there to listen and to comfort and to counsel me. But he's not really actually in control over his creation. He can sympathize with us because he was tempted in every way. And he sits above and outside of all things. So we, we tend to fall off the horse on either side. Either God is only transcendent or God is only imminent. And what I would just encourage us is to see both. Friends, that God is both overall creation and he is right next to us. He is both sovereign Lord and counselor and friend. And when we understand this, as David did, this is how we can have peace. This is how we can have peace in this adversity-driven world. It's why David can say in verses 5 to 6, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. See, David can sleep, not because his adversaries are weak, not because he found a great hiding spot, or he's in denial, or he's overly tired, but David understands that the Lord is sitting on his holy hill that the Lord is David's shield, that the Lord is the one who's going to lift up his head. The Lord is above and the Lord is near. See, what David is saying is that he will awake again only because the Lord sustained him. It was the Lord who lifted him up and stood him up and protected him. There's such a great confidence that David can look at the many thousands of people who stand against him and be fearless because of the Lord. And notice one thing. Notice what David is not saying at this point. At no point is David dictating to the Lord how to save him. He's not even saying that the Lord will save him. David's expressing a great trust in the Lord. And there's a lesson for us here. That no matter what's going on in our lives today, the Lord is in control. And what that means, friends, is that we do not tell the Lord how to save us. We do not tell the Lord how things are to unfold. You know, my wife and I, we have four kids. Uh, we've also had four miscarriages. And, and one of the things that you experience as you go through miscarriages is you understand the acute reality that God both blesses you with children and God takes away children. And, and it was never the prayer of my wife and I that the Lord would take any of them away. Our prayer was always that the Lord would sustain him. And one of the hardest parts for those, and, and, and it's not just miscarriage, it's struggling with life, struggling with loss, but, but just in this situation, one of the hardest things for my wife and I to recognize was that every time we got pregnant, we had to say, the Lord's good may not be our understanding of good. That every time he took a child away, he was taking away one more way we depended upon our circumstances in this world. One more time, we took a, we would, he would take away our understanding of what is good for us. So friends, we do not get to dictate to the Lord what is good. We do not get to dictate to the Lord how to save us. We trust that the Lord is good. He will deliver us, though it may not be the way we would have written it. We release control and trust the Lord. We have to live with that understanding. So when I worry, when I obsess, when I wonder what the Lord's going to do, I trust the Lord that he can take care of it. 
I place all the weight of my worries and my stress on the Lord, knowing that he will deliver us. See, David's instructions for us is to put it on the Lord. And though it might be hard, it's the best way that we can truly rest is when we put it on the Lord. Look, <laughs> this is easier said than done. I'm first to admit that when life is hard and it's stressful, I don't go to sleep so easily, right? I lay in bed and I obsess about it. I, I, I dwell deeply upon it. But brothers and sisters, we should strive to be people who trust the Lord so deeply that we can rest in him, that we can go to sleep and we can know, as David knew, that the Lord will rise up, which is our, our final point that for this morning. When life hits you hard, go to sleep. And lastly, because the Lord will rise up. Look at verses seven and eight. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and your blessing be on your people. See, David doesn't just pray for deliverance here. Notice what David prays for. He prays that he would strike all his enemies on the cheek. David wants to see victory. He doesn't just want to hide. He wants the Lord to rise up and rout his enemies. And this is what happens. In 2 Samuel 15, David sent Hushai back to serve Solomon so that he could thwart the counts of Ahithophel, as we had said earlier. And in 2 Samuel 17, we actually see this playing out. Ahithophel counsels Absalom to let him take out 12,000 men and pursue David while he's tired and discouraged. Ahithophel promises Absalom, look, I'm only going to go out there and kill David, none of his other men. And what we're told in 2 Samuel 17 is that this advice sounded good. It sounded right to Absalom and to the elders of Israel. But then Hushai comes. Hushai, who had served Saul, who had served David, who had now promised to serve Absalom. Hushai comes and offers his counsel. He warns Absalom that though Ahithophel's counsel sounds good, it's not. He warns that David's men are not tired, but they're enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs. David and his men are waiting in ambush to destroy the men of Absalom. Surely Absalom was aware, as all people were, of what was said about David, that David had slain his ten thousands. And this part of the story concludes with verses 14 and 15, that Absalom and the elders and the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. The Lord, from his holy hill, was rising against Absalom. He was preparing to strike Absalom on the teeth. David's cry, Arise, O Lord, is the cry of God's people. It's always been the cry of God's people for all time, in all places. And just as the Lord is going to deliver David from the hands of his enemies, friends, the Lord has delivered us from our enemies. He has already done this. Christian, if you are a Christian in this room, with the coming of Jesus, God answered the cry so often heard from God's people. Arise, O Lord. Up from the lowly town of Bethlehem came a Galilean, hated and despised by the ruling class. 
and by those who thought they sat on God's holy hill. Jesus rises up from his lowly estate, and he establishes such a following that they decided to make him king. They wanted to raise him up. But Jesus understood what he had come to do. He had not come to stoop so low as to sit on an earthly throne. Jesus had come to establish a heavenly kingdom. The people sought to raise him up to that throne, but Jesus would not do it. This led to his rejection and eventual crucifixion. So that Jesus was risen up, not to a throne, but up onto a cross. You know, those who crucified Jesus, not the Roman soldiers, but the ruling class, the Pharisees, they knew Psalm 3. Arise, O Lord, would have been on the tips of their tongues. But they never anticipated that God would answer that prayer through a Galilean. That the Lord would rise him up in such a lowly place and in such a lowly way. See, they lifted the Son of God up to a cross. And they took him down and they lay him in a tomb. And this time, though, it was the Lord who said, Arise, O son, get up from the grave. And so Jesus rose up from the grave, conquering death, putting all his enemies to shame. Christian, our God has answered our prayer. Arise, O Lord. He has risen from the grave and he has delivered us from our greatest adversary, from death. See, this is our hope. This is how we face all the adversity of this life. This is how we face all of our enemies because anything we face in this life pales in comparison to death, our greatest adversary. And by Jesus rising, by him answering that prayer, arise, O Lord, he secured for us life forevermore. So whatever you're going through in this life, remember that Jesus died for you. He rose from the grave for you. And you have conquered death through him. And now if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, or or maybe you're struggling to grasp what's true of Jesus, here's what I want you to know. Jesus rose up on that cross by the hands of men to forgive the very sinners who had placed the nails in his hands. And Jesus rose from the dead so that you would see that Jesus had conquered death. That you would remember his words and trust in the one, the only one who can deliver you from death. Friend, if you're here this morning, if you've not seen the beauty, if you've not understood the good news of Jesus, I implore you to look at him. Look at Jesus. Look at who he has said he is. And trust that Jesus can deliver you from your sins. That Jesus can pick you up from the hole that you've dug for yourself. That Jesus can give you the rest that you need in him. Because it's his salvation. Look at verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is the Lord's salvation, and he will do with it what he desires. See, back in verse 2, David's enemies mocked him as one who would receive no salvation from the Lord. But David says that was never their decision to declare. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and it's only, friends, only the Lord who can save us. Church, I want you to know that the Lord is the one who rises up to defeat our enemies. 
and he has already defeated death. And if the Lord can defeat death and make peace for us with God, friends, let us just remember, what does that say of the trials that we go through? How can the good news of the gospel speak to our trials, our adversities in this life? See, we can depend upon God because he has shown himself dependable. In the gospel, we see how God cares for his people, that the Lord rose up to defeat sin and death, and he will not leave us to fight for ourselves. Friends, when adversity comes, when life hits us hard, we can go to sleep, but we can go to sleep because we can know that the Lord rises up. Brothers and sisters, the Lord never stops fighting for us. Let's pray. Lord, we don't, I don't know all that is going on in this room. I don't know all the troubles that this church is facing, all the individuals are facing. So Lord, my prayer is that we would take comfort in knowing that you are our salvation, that you have declared salvation to those who trust in you, to those who declare that you, Lord, have risen up to to fight our enemies, to fight our battles. God, we can trust you. We can know that you are in control of all things. God, you are both transcendent and you are imminent. Lord, you are above and you are near. And in that, Lord, we can take great comfort. And so, Lord, as we sing this morning, we declare loudly about the one who rose from the grave, who conquered sin and conquered death. Lord, we pray that and we thank you for that this morning in your name. Amen.